Welcome to the High Speed Reads Podcast. Here you'll expand your knowledge and understanding on a wide range of business, entrepreneurial and self-development skills in just 30 minutes or less. I'm your host, Grant Kitchingman. Introducing the High Speed Reads Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the 17th episode of the High Speed Reads podcast, formerly known as Wilfred. Thanks so much for joining me yet again as we continue to deconstruct various self-improvement, self-help and business books. We do this to collect the best ideas from various self-made entrepreneurs, business moguls, gurus and wonderkins. In this episode, we'll be analysing Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Crocky mate, almost forgot the tunes. What's this one? The label's scratched. Purple... Rain, purple. Ah, we'll chuck it on. Malcolm Gladwell is an author, journalist, and cultural commentator who was born on the 3rd of September, 1963. He grew up and went to school in rural Ontario, reportedly receiving disappointing grades during his schooling. Gladwell decided to pursue advertising as a profession. However, after being rejected by every advertising agency under the sun, he accepted a journalism position at the American Speculator magazine. Between the years 1987 and 1996, he would work as a reporter for the Washington Post, covering business and science. Gladwell interned with the National Journalism Center in Washington in 1982. He would also graduate with a bachelor's degree in history from Trinity College of the University of Toronto in 1984. Due to his high performance in his field, Gladwell would eventually become the paper's bureau chief in New York City. Since working for and leaving the Washington Post in 1996, Gladwell has been a staff writer for The New Yorker. He is also the host of the Revisionist History podcast and co-founded Pushkin Industries. Outliers was Gladwell's third book coming after The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference and Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, both of which would become New York Times bestsellers. He would also write four further books after Outliers, which included What the Dog Saw and Other Adventures, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About People We Don't Know, and The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, A Temptation and The Longest Night of the Second World War. Only Gladwell's final two books would fail to make the New York Times best-selling lists an impressive feat in its own right. You may therefore question why I've selected this book from Gladwell as the first to deconstruct. Well, that is because Outliers was the number one New York Times bestseller for 11 straight weeks and was listed as Time's 10th best nonfiction book of 2008. Outliers has also been named in the San Francisco Chronicles list of the 50 best nonfiction books for that year. In today's episode, I'll be sharing the ideas, anecdotes, statements, or otherwise, which resonated with me the most. So, it must be noted that I may have left something important out of my summary. I would therefore recommend that you purchase the book yourself and make your own notes or judgments. If this sounds like too much work, and you not reading these books is the entire reason for you tuning into my podcast in the first place, I commend you for being honest and recommend you continue listening. Additionally, now it seems like the Persic, Persic, did I just have a stroke? Oh my goodness gracious.
Now seems like the perfect time to remind you that these episodes are extremely time consuming to create. This is because I read and highlight each book, take notes, write a script, record and edit the podcast rather than mindlessly dribbling on with literal verbalized feces. This podcast is not a brain break. I acknowledge that. So it might not be for everyone. But if you do enjoy the podcast, please shoot me a five-star rating and subscribe to or follow the podcast, depending on the platform you are listening on. Not only will this ensure that you don't miss another episode, but full disclosure will help me out a bunch with extending my reach and growing my platform. Feel free as well to pass on the podcast to anyone you believe might benefit from the content by hitting share as well. Anyway, enough self-absorbent plugging. I have broken down the book into three equal sections, each of which will be discussed throughout. These parts include Part 1, Intelligence Part 2, Hard Work versus Talent and Part 3, Blueprint for Success. As Gladwell himself states, these are stories about people who were given a special opportunity to work really hard and seized it, and who happened to come of age at a time when the extraordinary effort was rewarded by the rest of society. I hope you enjoy the journey as you and I together explore the true path to success. Without further ado, let's dive on in. Sorry, after 300 ribbon cuttings, it's a little hard to turn off. Dive on in. Part 1. Intelligence. Most parents think that whatever disadvantage a young child faces in kindergarten eventually goes away. But it doesn't. As a teacher myself, I'm extremely intrigued by the factors which affect student performance and learning. This is of course because I want to ensure they have the support they need to learn at their best. One of the ideas Gladwell raises in his book is that age and the month in which students are born have an exponential effect on both their academic and sporting achievement. In Australia, January through April are those weird cut-off months in most states and territories, where parents need to decide whether to send their child who has or will only just become old enough to school or hold them back another year. Specifically, in New South Wales, you can enrol your child in school if they turn 5 on or before July 31 that year. In Victoria, your child must be 5 years old by 30th of April of the year they start school, whereas in Queensland and Western Australia, they need to be 5 by June 30 in the year they enrol. This means, while your child can start school at around four and a half years of age, they will be in a class with children who are as old as six years of age. Parenting expert Maggie Dent recommends keeping children back for an extra year if possible. This pertains especially to boys, as they are slower to develop and emotionally and linguistically, they are often not as quick and sharp as girls. This information source from practicalparenting.com.au Being placed in school at five years myself, due to being born in January, I was one of the youngest people in my year. At the time, I thought this was a good thing. After all, I would be younger than most when I'd finished school, with the rest of my professional career ahead of me. However, looking back on it now, with an elevated understanding of cognitive development and the education system, I am less confident in sending children to school earlier rather than later. After all, one year is an eternity regarding cognitive and physical developments during that time. From the ages of 5 and 6, it is known that memory, attention, reasoning and planning skills increase considerably. This increase allows children to better manage their emotions, thoughts and behaviours, in addition to helping them store information, solve problems, exercise judgement 
and understand the world around them. It's indeed obvious that these skills will allow students to prosper in both their studies and at play. Additionally, this emotional and educational gap between the youngest and the oldest of the year will never actually be reduced. These students will always be developmentally behind their peers, which will therefore affect their academic, sporting and social performance. With this in mind, let me reread Gladwell's quote which I used to introduce this part. Most parents think that whatever disadvantage young child faces in kindergarten eventually goes away, but it doesn't. Gladwell also speaks to Lewis Terman's 1921 longitudinal study, Genetic Studies of a Genius. This study investigated whether high IQ students were eventually more successful in life. Terman fondly named these students his termites and followed them throughout their schooling and into their professional careers. What he found was that while some of his high IQ subjects were very successful, most had not strived and most actually turned out no better than average. As Gladwell states, Terman concluded that intellect and achievement are far from perfectly correlated, as his study concluded that, in the end, only one thing mattered, family background. Of the 730 gifted individuals who were followed for the study, 150, the top 20%, fell into what Terman called the A group, a group which overwhelmingly came from the middle and upper class. Their homes were filled with books. Basically, this study further concludes that the backgrounds of students, cultural and socio-economic class, has a resounding impact on their educational achievement. This, of course, is not groundbreaking or surprising information. However, perhaps in 1921, it was. Gladwell states further, What your parents do for a living and the assumptions that accompany the class of your parents belong to matter. In summary, Whilst intelligence is a contributing factor in the success of individuals, it is no more a requirement than attractiveness or work ethic in today's society. Additionally, there seems to be a tipping point when it comes to intelligence. At the very least, there seems to be a point at which the correlation between intelligence and success plateaus. Gladwell places a ballpark figure on this, writing, Once someone has reached an IQ of somewhere around 120, Having additional IQ points doesn't seem to translate into any measurable real-world advantage. A basketball player only has to be tall enough, and the same is true of intelligence. Intelligence has a threshold. Quote, We are so caught in the myths of the best and the brightest and the self-made that we think outliers spring naturally from the earth. But that's the wrong lesson. This seems obvious, but what is it then that makes those high performers successful? How are they able to achieve those lofty heights that most of us only dream of? Part 2. Nature versus Nurture Hard work is a prison sentence only if it does not have meaning. If you are unfamiliar with the concept of nature versus nurture, it can essentially be translated to born versus made, or more descriptively, talent versus hard work. In other words, can the success of individuals be contributed to innate talent, or is their success the result of hard work and dedication? Well, I'll attempt to explore this concept in this part. In Outliers, Gladwell introduces a concept of 10,000 hours. This concept basically insinuates that in order to become an expert in any given field, the individual needs simply spend 10,000 hours practicing and honing their craft. Gladwell writes, With violinists, 
The elite performers had total 10,000 hours of practice with pianists, the same pattern emerged. This concept would lead one to side with the Nurch argument in the debate, as practicing and putting the hashtag time in is a major pillar on which it stands. A clip from the Jonathan Ross show springs to mind, in which guest Ed Sheeran explains perfectly that many people assume his ability is a result of talent alone. Sheeran then goes on to play a recording of himself singing and playing guitar from his early years. Yes, oh indeed. This shows that this preconceived notion regarding Ed Sheeran and innate talent in general isn't at all true. Given that we don't ourselves possess this skill, it's easy to assume that he was simply born or magically manifested his. This is a closed-minded idea and, as we have confirmed, equally untrue. Here's what Sheeran says on the matter. Okay. So this is this is my thing. When when people go, when people go, ah, oh, you, you're so talented. You were born with natural talent. I'm like, mm, no. When people say artists are born with talent, you're not. It would be equally ignorant to assume that innate talent does not exist. Professional athletes are inherently talented. They would not reach or continue to achieve at the level they do if they weren't. Their genetics, lung capacity, fast twitch or slow twitch muscle fiber ratios, depending on their discipline all enable them to represent their countries or their families in elite competition. Yet, this is simply one piece of the puzzle. Gladwell supports this argument, writing, Is there such a thing as innate talent? The obvious answer is yes. But, achievement is talent plus preparation. The closer psychologists look at the careers of the gifted, the smaller the role innate talent seems to play, and the bigger the role preparation seems to play. This takes us back to the 10,000 hours argument. However, some light reading on the old interwebs might reveal that this theory is more or less debunked. Brad Stolberg, co-author of the book Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout and Thrive with the New Science of Success, noted that psychological research actually indicates expertise is developed based on the way you practice rather than the time you devote. Source from businessinsider.com this seems obvious, as simply slapping the strings of your stepdaddy's old college guitar for around 10,000 hours won't turn you into Jimi Hendrix. Additionally, although 10,000 hours of purposeful, structured, and consistent practice may still not get you there, you'd be pretty freaking good. Gladwell writes, Researchers have settled on what they believe is the magic number for true expertise, 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. Great, but not an expert. But this is precisely what Gladwell later explains in his book, suggesting not that anyone could become an expert in anything with 10,000 hours of work, but rather that a lot of time on top of natural ability was necessary for expertise. Gladwell also connects this idea to the early days of the Beatles when they played religiously in the clubs and bars of Hamburg yeah, between 1960 and 1964. This practice not only allowed them to hone their musical prowess, but also their stage presence, endurance, and a range of other factors which led them to their eventual success. He also mentions Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft, having rare access to a computer in 1968 at the age of only 13 years. Gates spent many a night and weekend in that computer room, which gave him a substantial head start in programming and apparently allowed him to build his company at a much younger age than he might otherwise have been able to. Most importantly, a meta-analysis conducted by McNamara 
Hambrick and Oswald, no, not Cobblepot, you nerd, concluded that deliberate practice explained 26% of the variance in performance for games, 21% for music, 18% for sports, 4% for education, and less than 1% for professions. Stating further, we conclude that deliberate practice is important, but not as important as has been argued. Note, this meta-analysis is called deliberate practice and performance in music, games, sports, education, and professions, a meta-analysis. I would highly recommend you check it out for further reading and evaluation. This seems like the perfect time to talk about hard work. Everyone has heard these absolute bangers. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Tim Noak, basketball coach. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Thomas Paine, American founding father. Do or do not, there is no try. Okay, that one was from my boy Yoda. But you get the point. Hard work pays off is what I'm getting at. Quote, No one who can rise before the dawn 360 days a year fails to make his family rich. That one is from Gladwell, but is actually a quote which originated in Asia. I'll explain. Gladwell states that some estimates put the annual workload of a wet rice farmer in Asia at 3,000 hours per year. People, bah, people. You're trying to crunch the numbers in your head right now, aren't you? You absolute brick. <laughs> just kidding. Well, it works out to be just over eight hours per day. And I know what you're thinking. Grant, I'd do that anyway. But keep in mind that that average is based on working 360 days of the year. Conversely, the average Westerner only works 260 days per year, which means for us, that would work out to be around 11.5 hours per day. Now, fair enough, you work in the mines. I know you work 12 to 13 hour days, but let's not forget your 8 on 6 off or 14 on 7 off rotations and your 6 figure salaries. <laughs> well, listen, I know you miners are probably thinking, oh, bloody PE teacher, what would you know about hard work? And you're probably right, to be fair. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that's my point. Our definition of what hard work is are relative. Our definition of what hard work is in the West will differ completely to that of an Asian wet rice farmer. Quote, Working really hard is what successful people do. Success is a function of persistence and doggedness and the willingness to work hard for 22 minutes to make sense of something that most people would give up on after 30 seconds. One might say that this is Gladwell's blueprint, his blueprint for success. Part 3. Blueprint for success. People don't rise from nothing. Let's be honest. The main reason I chose this title was because of the old Arnold Schwarzenegger video, which was uploaded to YouTube by Bodybuilding.com. This video was called Arnold Schwarzenegger's Blueprint, and it has been viewed 83 million times at the time of writing. This video allowed the viewer to gain insight into Arnie's training intensity, methodical planning, and willpower, which led to his success on the Olympia stage. I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is my blueprint. A little banger from your past, no doubt. I'm sure most of you listening have heard of it. If one person understands success, it's Arnold, as he's achieved in bodybuilding, acting, real estate investment, and politics. In this section, we'll explore the path to success, as per Gladwell's writings. Gladwell himself states, Success is not a random act. 
It arises out of a predictable and powerful set of circumstances and opportunities. So let's identify and explain these. In the last episode, in which I deconstructed Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, I said that one factor which contributed to the success of Nike was that of luck. A statement, of course, which Phil attested to. Gladwell makes a similar point, writing that lucky breaks don't seem like the exception with software billionaires and rock bands and star athletes. They seem like the rule. I will reiterate the same point I made last week, which was that although luck was a key player in the success of Nike and so many other companies, it would be foolish to attribute this as the sole factor. A second quote provided by Gladwell confirms this, as he writes, Success follows a predictable course. It is not the brightest who succeed, nor is success simply the sum of the decisions and efforts we make on our own behalf. Outliers are those who have been given opportunities and who have had the strength and presence of mind to seize them. Therefore, it seems that resilience, perseverance and opportunistic traits are paramount as well. Likewise, it seems like the old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know, holds true to some extent. As Gladwell writes, no one, not rock stars, not professional athletes, not software billionaires, and not even geniuses, ever makes it alone. One must therefore be willing and able to graciously and effectively utilize and leverage the help of others if they are to improve their standing. Rock stars need managers, professional athletes need trainers, nutritionists, and physiotherapists, software billionaires need coders to make their visions a reality, and geniuses need funding to pay for their research or experiments. Everyone needs assistance in some regard, and it is our ability to effectively employ that assistance that may heavily affect our success or failure. Gladwell also writes, Superstar lawyers and math wizards and software entrepreneurs appear at first blush to lie outside ordinary experiences, but they don't. They are products of history and community, of opportunity and legacy. Their success is not exceptional or mysterious. Adding further, it is those who are successful who are most likely to be given the kinds of special opportunities that lead to further success. The result of what sociologists like to call a cumulative advantage. First, let's discuss job satisfaction, which to some, well, let's be honest, most, is an absolute pipe dream. It's no surprise that many individuals hate their job. This becomes evident when talking to one's colleagues, friends, family, whoever. Yet, it becomes concrete when studies are released proving these notions. A 2021 study from the Pew Research Center noted that workers who quit a job cited the following reasons for resigning. Pay. 63%. No opportunities for advancement. 63%. Feeling disrespected at work. 57%. Child care issues. 48% among those with a child younger than 18 in their household. Benefits. 43%. This included health insurance and paid leave. Source. PewResearch.org. Here in Australia, a new report from the University of Melbourne and YouGov asked a sample of 1,400 workers from all across Australia about job satisfaction. It found that burnout affects about 50% of prime-aged workers, those between 18 and 54. Younger workers in particular feel there are fewer opportunities for advancement and are more likely to feel time poor. And thirdly, a third of workers under 54 are considering quitting. Source, theguardian.com. Then the question seems to be, what do workers need at work to be satisfied? Well, Gladwell states that three things, autonomy, complexity, and a connection between effort and reward are 
most people agree the three qualities that work must have if it is to be satisfying. It's not how much money we make. It's whether our work fulfills us. Therefore, employers, take note. For you should focus on providing autonomy, the ability to make your own decisions without being controlled by anyone else. This means simply giving your subordinates an end goal and not micromanaging them in order to get there. Second, complexity. Ensure your subordinates are being challenged in their role. If the individual finds their responsibilities too easy, simple, what have you, they will not gain any job satisfaction and will simply seek another. And third, reward and effort. If your subordinates feel as though they are giving their all in their role and not being appreciated, their motivation will dwindle and they will reach burnout faster as a result. Lastly, it must be understood that failure is part of any process and therefore necessary in any venture. Many people say, if you aren't failing, you aren't taking enough calculated risks. Teachers like myself easily fall into the trap of expecting perfection in assessment tasks and exams, for example. But this downplays the importance of failure. Unfortunately, students go through school being told that failure is not desirable. However, it's more than that. It's essential. It's transformational. So many CEOs, business owners, entrepreneurs, they all discuss the necessity of failure. So let's reframe our failures and understand that it is both an opportunity to show resilience and therefore improve our character or business. Gladwell writes, we prematurely write off people as failures. We are too much in awe of those who succeed and far too dismissive of those who fail. Well, that's it for this episode of High Speed Reads and a summary of what I've learned from reading Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I hope you enjoyed the episode, fam. For those of you tuning in for the first time, I read and highlight a new finance or self-improvement book, write a script, record and release a new episode all within one to two weeks. Hey, who's not the music? Turn it back on your cheeky butt. Uh, yep, thank you, thank you. I focus on releasing a condensed yet detailed breakdown of the book so you don't have to read it yourself. You can get a fair summary of the book for free in the time it takes you to get to work or get home from work. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to give back, please do, mate. All I'll ask is you put some respect on it, rate five stars, and follow the podcast. This will ensure that you don't miss another episode of the pod, and full disclosure will help me a bunch in growing my platform. Higgity Spiggity Wiggity is now available on all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. All right, all right, time to get serious again. <coughs> Wherever you choose to consume this content, Thanks so much for the support. I hope this is extended to my next one. Until next time, stay driven. Hey everyone, just lastly, I'd like to give a special shout out to Purple Cat, that is P-U-R-R-P-L-E, as in Purple Cat. They can be found on all major streaming services. Uh, their music can be heard in the intro and outro of today's episode. 
and the same will be done in all future episodes. Thanks so much again, Purple Cat. Enjoy the music. <laughs>